Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you listen most. If you're looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Again, my name is Colton Tatham, and I'm Journey's uh, West Campus pastor. So if you're new today uh, or if you're watching or listening to us online later this week, uh, thanks again for joining us. And Matt, thanks for reading our scripture. Uh, if any one of you would be interested in you know, doing a scripture reading and prayer, uh, we do have opportunities for you to do that every week. Um, it's pretty cool as a church you know, to get to read God's word together and pray together. So if you'd like to do that, let me know, and I'd love to sign you up for a week uh, in the coming months. So today we're going to be continuing our all-in sermon series on our call to be the church. And as a part of this series, uh, we're going to be unpacking some of our biblical values here at Journey Bible Church. So by way of review, uh, we looked at our mission and our vision statements as a church in our first sermon in this series. Uh, both flow from Jesus' disciple-making call in Matthew 4, in which he calls out to four fishermen, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. From that call as a church, we understand that it's our mission to journey together, passionately following Jesus, and it's our vision to be a church, to be a movement of Christ followers changing our community and the world. Uh, then, last Sunday, uh, we looked at the relationship between the church's work and God's work in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, this is where Paul writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Even though God is the one who ultimately gives growth, the Bible gives us guiding values about how to be united with him in growth. Uh, when our church's leaders surveyed uh, the Bible a few years ago, uh, they identified 10 key values. Uh, these 10 values are all biblical principles for Christian growth that we want to see happening right here at Journey Bible Church and especially happening in the West Campus. Uh, up on the screen, we're going to post the first five values, uh, then we'll start looking at the next five values next Sunday. Uh, our first value is that we are anchored in God's Word. Uh, this means that we believe the Bible is our source of truth, and it unfolds for us God's will and ways. Our second value is that we are empowered by God's Spirit, and this means that we trust the Holy Spirit to enable us to do God's will, to enlighten us to discern God's will, and to guide us to seek God's will. Our third value is that we are united in Christ, uh, this means that as a church body, uh, we really place the needs and the unity of the church above our own personal needs. No matter what our talents, our gifts, our calling, or our maturity in Christ may be, we fight to build up the church in unity, not to tear it down. Our fourth value is that we show unconditional love. Every person craves to be loved, so we love unconditionally with God's love. 
We want to be the kind of church that demonstrates Christ's love through our words and our actions. As 1 John 4.19 reminds us, we love because He first loved us. And our fifth value that we're going to explore today is that we would be relentless in prayer. We want to be the kind of church where believers ask persistently in faith, believing nothing is impossible for God. So what kind of disciples, what kind of people, Christ followers, Christians, do we want to see at Journey Bible Church? Well, we want to see Christians who are anchored in God's Word, empowered by God's Spirit, united in Christ, unconditional in love, and relentless in prayer. These are the first five biblical values that we want Christ followers characterized by here at Journey. And again, we're going to look at the next five starting next Sunday. Ultimately, when people see us, we want people to see Jesus through us. And the way that the Bible says this happens is by practicing these kinds of principles and values in faith. This morning, our lead pastor, Pastor Mike, uh, wanted us to really hone in on relentless prayer. Uh, in an email he sent me this week, this is what he wrote. He said, Today, I believe we need to focus on our value of relentless prayer. I know that in my life, this area is of greatest need to be developed. I believe it is our churches also. Now, some of you may be in total agreement with Pastor Mike. I know I am when it comes to prayer. But others of you might be absolute prayer warriors, and I know a few of you are. Uh, but others of you have maybe some other areas that you need to grow when you reflect on that list of five. You know, when you are thinking about them, maybe you're thinking, you know, maybe it's your desire for the body to be unified in Christ that's what's lacking in you most. You know, you might find yourself constantly, you know, lone wolfing um, for Christ, or you find yourself having trouble keeping commitments to the church, or you have a propensity to stir things up. Or maybe you're thinking, you know, you've been trying to do everything in your own strength rather than in the power of God's Spirit. Uh, you find yourself constantly exhausted. You're anxious when you should be content. And you're saying no to opportunities where you sense God is really calling you to say yes. You know, the reason why prayer, relentless prayer, is so incredible so valuable and so important to focus on is that even when there are other areas of our lives that need to be developed, prayer is always the first step to seeing our lives transform, grow, and flourish for God. If you want to be more anchored in God's Word, it starts with prayer. If you want to be empowered by the Spirit, it starts with prayer. If you want to be more loving, it starts with prayer. If we want to see Journey Bible Church grow with more disciples and deeper disciples, and if we want to see the West Campus grow and launch and reach more families for Christ, then it starts with prayer. If you look in your uh, bulletins, uh, you'll find uh, our quote of the week from our book of the month. Um, and this month, our book is Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders. Uh, it's just a short book with short chapters about how to lead like Jesus leads in the Bible. You know, even a skeptic is going to have a hard time denying that Jesus started one of the greatest movements in history. 
Uh, a group of nobodies practically became world changers, and as Christians, we believe they're world changers because Jesus is truly the Son of God. Uh, in his book, Oswald Sanders argues that one of the reasons that Jesus was the best leader ever was because he was the best follower ever, too. And you know, to pray is really to show and acknowledge that we follow God. And in his chapter on prayer, he writes this. He says, People who are skeptical of prayer's validity and power are usually those who do not practice it seriously or fail to obey when God reveals his will. We cannot learn about praying except by praying. No philosophy has ever taught a soul to pray. The intellectual problems associated with prayer are met in the joy of answered prayer and closer fellowship to God. Again, he says, we cannot learn about praying except by praying. And the intellectual problems associated with prayer are met in the joy of answered prayer and closer fellowship to God. In today's message, uh, we're going to take some time afterwards um, to celebrate communion together. And during communion, we really want to invite all of you to take a moment to practice praying in a quiet time of closer fellowship to God. Uh, now, Oswald Sanders isn't saying here that there's nothing at all to be learned about prayer from the Bible, but what he is saying is that you cannot intellectually master prayer you can't theoretically understand prayer without actually practicing prayer. And so we're going to take some time to do that later in the service today. Now, many of you know that I love playing tabletop board games. It's a ton of fun, in my opinion, to sit around the house with a bunch of friends, to fellowship around game pieces and rule books. Personally, I love games with like 100-page rule books that can take over five hours to finish in a single setting. Strategy, chance, imagination, story, those are some of the things that I think make board games fun. But there are a few of you that are convinced that the reason they're called board games is because they're boring. You know, you can't stand playing board games. Now, it may be a matter of opinion or preference, but whether it's board games or cooking or sports, uh, you can try to explain the rules to someone that's never played before. You can try to explain the recipe that someone that's never baked a cake before. You can try how to explain how to score a point in a game, but none of that really matters until you actually start playing the game, baking the cake, or kicking the ball. A lot of you have probably heard this before, and you know you maybe have told other people this before, but it's pretty common knowledge that sometimes the best way to learn the game is to play the game. And the same is true with prayer. We can talk all we want about prayer, but it's through praying that we actually learn its true power in our lives. So in today's sermon, we're going to keep it simple, and we're going to keep it practical. First, we're going to look at how to pray, and then we're going to look at why we should pray relentlessly. Throughout the sermon, my challenge to each one of you is to be thinking about how you're going to practice real, relentless prayer in your own life this week. 
Now, for the rest of the message, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 and 7. So if you want to get your Bibles out and turn there, that's where we're going to be uh, for most of the message. Uh, these chapters form part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches us in a section how to pray. Then in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus teaches us why we should pray relentlessly. During, during the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, 5 through 8, Jesus begins by teaching his hearers how not to pray by sharing two bad examples of prayer. So look with me in your Bibles at Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8. Here's what Jesus says there. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So again, Jesus is teaching, or starting his teaching on prayer by sharing examples of how not to pray. He shares two bad examples of how not to pray before he then shares his own example of how to pray. As a slight caveat, I do want to say that verse 6, where Jesus describes praying in secret, is not an excuse to only pray in secret. If you're a believer and you've never, ever prayed for another person before in public, I'm sorry to say, but you might be misunderstanding what Jesus means here, or maybe you've been missing out on the opportunity to be a blessing to those in need. One of the best questions that you can ask somebody is, how can I pray for you and then actually do it? Now, we definitely should pray in secret to our Father who is in secret. This is exactly what Jesus did all throughout uh, the Gospels. But Jesus also prayed for himself, and he prayed for other people in public too. In fact, most of his recorded prayers in the Bible happen in public settings. In verse 9, as we'll see in a moment, Jesus himself starts praying publicly for all the crowds who had gathered for the Sermon on the Mount. So verse 6 is not there to endorse timid, quiet, passive Christianity. Rather, verse 6 is a corrective to someone who has fallen into the trap of the first bad example, which is prayer is not a show. Again, prayer is not a show. Why? Because people are not your audience. God is. Jesus says that people who pray in public to perform and to get recognized aren't really praying. Their audience isn't God, so God isn't going to answer or reward them. Their audience is their fan club who might compliment them or flatter them with kind words. 
If your motivation to pray in public is to get recognized by everyone around you, then you've missed the whole point of praying in the first place. This should be of a great source of relief to any of us who do pray in public, though. Human beings aren't the ones that ultimately judge whether a prayer is a 7 out of 10 or an A minus or like a D plus. That's because we pray to the Almighty God, not to people. What a crowd thinks of your prayers ultimately doesn't matter. What matters is our heart and our authenticity to God when we pray to Him. This brings us to the second bad example Jesus mentions in these verses, which is prayer is not magic. Again, prayer is not magic. Because what you say to God matters to God. Now, I'm not saying that prayer cannot lead to the miraculous. It certainly does. But the second bad example that Jesus condemns is that of heaping up a bunch of nonsense words to heaven and expecting an outcome. That's no different than treating prayer like a magic trick. Magical nonsense words like abracadabra or hocus-pocus aren't going to cause the heavens to bend to your will. And gathering a bunch of people together to chant ritualistic gibberish isn't going to curry God's favor. The reason it is disingenuous to pray this way is because Jesus says the Father knows what you need before you ask Him. When you treat your prayers like a magic act, you're not relying on the God who knows to provide the answer. You're relying on your empty words and phrases instead. There is no faith in these prayers because there is no relationship with God in these prayers. If you knew God, you would already know that He knows what you need, and you would ask Him for help differently. You can't ask for help with a bunch of empty, meaningless words. For example, if I were to call one of you on the phone this week and say, hey, I needed some like, help with furniture, perhaps like that, but you know, instead I picked up the phone and I called one of you, I called Nathan, for instance, and said, abracadabra, and hung up, what would happen? He probably wouldn't show up, would he? He probably wouldn't answer and move, the, move anything. Now, let's say I was to call 911. Like, I broke my leg, I call 911, I probably need the ambulance to come. I don't think I would start reciting memory verses to the uh, 911 operator. I don't think I would recite the Apostles' Creed to the 911 operator. I would probably ask them for help. You see, God already knows what we need before we ask Him. However, we have to ask Him for help in a real, relational way. We have to talk to God like we would talk to a father or to a king. And this is exactly what Jesus shows us to do in the following verses. Jesus teaches his hearers how to pray by actually praying. He puts Sir Oswald Sanders' quote right into practice. So in verse 9, if you're following along in your Bibles, Jesus says, pray then like this. And he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, the section of the Bible is called the Lord's Prayer. And if you grew up in a particular church tradition, you may have also been taught to end the Lord's Prayer saying something like, And thine, or yours, is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you recite this prayer with the heart of a performer trying to impress people, then you're not really praying. Or if you recite this prayer like a magical incantation to grant you good luck in the week ahead, you're not really praying. But if you recite Jesus' own prayer here like it's intended to help teach you and remind you how to pray, then God will hear your prayers and he will answer. You know, entire sermon series have been preached on the Lord's Prayer, so there is a lot we could explore. But for our purposes, I just want to focus on three big parts that Jesus models when he prays. Uh, there are some discipleship resources called Every Man a Warrior and Cultivating Holy Beauty. Anybody gone through some of those? I know a few of you guys have. So uh, we have, a, I think, a few copies for sale at the bookstore if you want to check them out. But in those discipleship resources, they use a method called the war method uh, to teach men and women how to pray. Uh, it's based right out of Jesus' own prayer here in Matthew 6. Now, war is an acronym. You could probably rearrange it if you wanted to, to raw or something. But war is an acronym that stands for worship, admit, request. Again, worship, admit, request. That acronym itself is a helpful reminder that we're in a spiritual war. And we need the king of heaven's help to win battles against the trials that we face in life. In verses 9 through 10 in his prayer, uh, Jesus worships God. Uh, we see what it is to worship God in prayer really means to praise God for who he is and what he does. So what does Jesus do in his prayer? Well, he recalls something true about God revealed in the Bible, namely that his name is holy and that his kingdom is coming. And then he turns that truth into a prayer of thanksgiving and praise. Jesus shows us anybody can worship God in prayer. Again, it is the activity of telling God something praiseworthy and honorable or thanking God for his incredible activity in your life. Then in verse 12, Jesus, praying on behalf of the crowd, admits the crowd's shortcomings before God. Even though Jesus is the sinless Son of God, he models for the crowd in prayer that they ought to confess their sins to God. Jesus shows us that anybody could admit their failures and weaknesses to God in prayer. It starts with the confession of what you've done wrong, it's followed by asking for forgiveness, and then it ends with a commitment to repentance. You see, Jesus doesn't just pray for the crowd's debts to be forgiven. He prays that the crowds would change their ways and forgive their debtors too. This here is a prayer of commitment to repentance, and it's what it looks like to fully admit your sins to God. Lastly, in verses 11 and 13, Jesus requests God's help. What's amazing about the way Jesus asks for help is that he doesn't just ask for help for himself. 
He asks God to help others too. Jesus shows us that anybody can request God's help, not just for themselves, but for everyone. So in his prayer, Jesus requests bread as a provision for everyone. He requests protection from evil for everyone. Jesus requests God's will to be done for everyone. So, you know, if you find yourself struggling in prayer, or maybe that you only ever admit your sins to God, or maybe you just find yourself only ever requesting things from God in your own life, um, and you're not worshiping, admitting, and requesting God all three together in prayer, fully and faithfully, then perhaps you can use the war method or Jesus' prayer here in Matthew 6 as a biblical model for how to develop your own prayer life. Again, worship, admit, request. Now, one of the best ways to grow in prayer is to pray with others. Um, at 8.30 a.m. most Sundays, Jack on our portable team, Jack's back there waving, so he's the guy that takes attendance every week, if you didn't know. So, but he, he on our portable team joins uh, Doug Brownlee, one of our church elders, uh, for a time of prayer for the church. Um, and whenever Doug prays, he uses the war method to guide how he talks to the king. You know, if this is something you feel like would help you grow in your own prayer life, be sure to talk to Jack after the service about coming to one of Doug's prayer times before church sometime. Uh, another way that I think the war method might be helpful is when you ask to pray for someone else out in public. Or maybe you might ask to pray for someone that you meet here on Sunday morning during a service. Um, I know Wes McCoy goes out of his way every week to pray for people and even strangers um, that he's never met before. Isn't that right, Wes? Yeah, Wes is also in the back, so if you uh, want to give a wave, Wes, to anybody that doesn't know you, yeah, he's that guy back there, so he's nice and friendly, he doesn't bite. So Wes is pretty awesome, because if you didn't know this, Wes is actually one of our city council members. If anybody has a reason not to talk to strangers or potential voters uh, in public to pray, it's probably Wes McCoy, but Wes does it anyway. And Wes can tell you story after story about ways in which praying for people in public have been absolutely life-changing because he's not ashamed of the power of the gospel, the power of Christ to change lives. Uh, he steps out in faith to represent Christ. So when we pray in public for someone in need like that, it really isn't a show. Uh, we don't do it for recognition. And it doesn't need to be long-winded because the length of our prayer isn't really what determines the faithfulness of it. Simply worship, admit, or present a person's request to God. Simply worship God, admit our weakness, and present a person's request to God. Anybody can do that, even in public. If more of us were to step out in faith, could you imagine what it would look like if more Christians stepped out in faith to ask and pray with people in public, to pray with coworkers and neighbors or even strangers, even voters, if they were to step out and pray this way, I bet you God would certainly start answering prayers and begin bringing spiritual revival to our community in ways we've never seen before. So, you know, now that we've taken a little bit to look at how to pray in Matthew 6, let's take a look at why we should pray relentlessly in Matthew 7. 
If we want to be all in for prayer, what does that look like exactly? So if you have your Bibles, we can turn to Matthew 7. The verses are also there in the bulletin if you're like a highlighter. Uh, we're going to look at verses 7 to 11, so just like the gas station, uh, which Matt read for us before the sermon. So let's look here again what Jesus says. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In these verses, Jesus is nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount. His sermon started way back in chapter 5. So anybody who'd been listening to what Jesus was saying and preaching at this point was probably overwhelmed entirely. The crowds were probably wondering at this point, how in the world am I supposed to do all of this stuff that Jesus is describing? How in the world is my righteousness supposed to surpass the most holy priest in Jerusalem? If God considers my hate like murder or my lust like adultery, how am I supposed to escape final judgment? Or on top of that, how am I supposed to start loving my enemies or giving to the needy or to stop judging people that bother me? Jesus' answer here in Matthew 7 is relentless prayer. Relentless prayer is the answer. True prayer is one of the fullest expressions of true faith in Christ. And nothing is impossible for God when we pray relentlessly in faith. The reason why we need relentless prayer is because we face relentless opposition. Again, we need relentless prayer because we face relentless opposition. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus' words in verses 7 through 11 should remind us. You know, nothing may be impossible for God, but we still face relentless opposition on this side of heaven from our own desires, from the world itself, and even from spiritual forces of evil. If we have any hope in growing into the kind of people that God describes in his sermon, or that Jesus describes in his sermon here, then we desperately need God's help in order to get us there. Uh, and the way that we get God's help is by faithfully asking him to help us in relentless prayer. Now, a bedtime book that Kristen and I are reading to our daughters right now is the illustrated version of Little Pilgrim's Progress uh, by Helen Taylor. Um, the original book uh, called Pilgrim's Progress was written by a preacher named John Bunyan in the 1600s. There's a portrait of him up on the screen. Uh, John Bunyan's devotion to God can only be described as relentless. He never gave up his commitment to the Bible. If you can believe it, John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress and other books while imprisoned for 12 years in England. He was a Puritan, 
who refused to be ordained in a state church that he saw was controlled by the British government. You see, during this time period in the 1600s, England wanted tighter control over its churches. The monarchy passed laws so that preachers like John Bunyan wouldn't be allowed to preach freely from the Bible anymore. Instead, preachers needed to be registered by the state church and preach the state's approved liturgy. Thousands of Christian leaders refused, and thousands were imprisoned during this time. Eventually, in 1672, change came. Prayers were answered. The king freed thousands of imprisoned preachers who had refused to give up their calling to preach the Bible. Twenty years later, a few years after John Bunyan's death, over 100,000 copies of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress were already circulating around, the church, uh, around England. Today, it's one of the most translated and most published books of all time in the English language. Uh, just like the characters in his book, John Bunyan faced relentless opposition. His story reminds us that the journey of a Christian pilgrim to the celestial city is a hard one. Just because you pass through the narrow gate and are traveling along the narrow way doesn't mean that your journey as a Christian is over. God still has work for you to do. The good news is that while opposition may feel relentless, God never tires of hearing our prayers. He never tires of hearing his people pray relentlessly. And Matthew 7 is the proof of that. The words ask, seek, and knock in verse 7 are all rabbinic words for prayer. And these words are active and they escalate in intensity. Asking a question leads to seeking an answer, which leads to knocking at someone's door. Each one of these escalating activities of prayer is then met with an active and escalating response from God. God gives to the one who asks so they can receive. God guides the one who seeks so they can find. God answers the one who knocks so the door will open. The pattern that Jesus demonstrates here promises us that asking in prayer will be met by receiving. Seeking in prayer will be met by finding. And knocking in prayer will be met with opening. In relentless prayer, we need to ask God for help, and God promises that we will receive it. In relentless prayer, we also need to seek God's direction and will for our lives, and when we do, God promises that we will find it. And perhaps most importantly, in relentless prayer, we need to knock. No one can open the door into the fullness of God's saving presence except for God himself. If, as Oswald Sanders writes, we want all of our asking and seeking to be met in the joy of answered prayer and closer fellowship to God, then we have to knock in faith. We have to pray believing Jesus can do the impossible, like bringing the dead to life, 
or rescuing wayward and prodigal souls or advancing the church into new frontiers. And we have to knock with a desire to be in God's presence. If we're striving to become the kind of all-in followers that Jesus describes in his sermon, then, there, then we also need to pray believing that we have a Father in heaven who wants to give his children good gifts. He is inviting people to come into his kingdom to celebrate. He's preparing gifts to give to all. As verse 11 says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, Jesus isn't saying that God will always give us exactly what we ask him for, even if we ask him for it relentlessly and faithfully. You see, it doesn't matter how many times my one-year-old or my three-year-old asked me for cookies. I'm not just going to give them cookies because it's not always good for them to be eating cookies all the time. What Jesus does say, though, is that God will give good things to those who ask him. He doesn't say he, God will give exactly what you want. It says that God will give good things to those who ask him. Those who ask will receive. It may not always be what you ask for, but it will always be good, and it will always be something to help you. You know, last week we talked about God's gift of the Holy Spirit, how God's Spirit empowers and guides us. But we cannot forget about the gift of God's Son. You know, I doubt that many people were praying at the beginning of the first century for God to send His Son to be the Savior of the world. But God gave the world the greatest gift that it didn't know it needed. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, He opened the way for us to be restored from sin and secure in God's presence. Of all the good things God gives to those who ask, perhaps the best thing to pray for is the faith to passionately follow God's own Son. You see, our relentless pursuit of God in prayer should be a response to God's relentless pursuit for us in Christ. Our relentless pursuit of God in prayer should be a response to God's relentless pursuit for us in Christ. You know, if you want an example of what it looks like to pursue God relentlessly in prayer, then look no further than Jesus himself in the Bible. But you know, if you feel yourself needing an allegory, something to help freshen up the way that you see the Savior, then maybe work your way through an updated edition of John Bunyan's Christian classic. All throughout Little Pilgrim's Progress by Helen Taylor, a little Christian wants nothing more than to enter the celestial city, the city where the evangelists had told him that his mother and the king were both waiting for him. In just about every chapter, little Christian meets relentless opposition. People call him names for listening to the evangelists. People tell him the celestial city isn't real and he's a fool for trying to find it. People try to convince him that he'd be much happier if he just stopped following the narrow path. At times, little Christian is slowed down. 
At times, little Christian even loses his way. But whenever little Christian needs it most, help always arrives so he can keep moving forward toward the celestial city. Just like little Christian, all of us are on a spiritual journey as pilgrims in God's sight. And no matter what you try to do, you're going to face some sort of opposition if you try to faithfully follow Jesus Christ. That opposition may come from the form of something from within your own heart. It may come from other people. But even when opposition does come, remember that the Lord waits for you in the celestial city. And like the words above the narrow gate, remember, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you as the true Lord of heaven. Your name is sacred and your sovereignty unrivaled. God, we are eager for your perfect ways of your spiritual kingdom to restore the broken ways of our fallen world. God, let the fullness of your will be shown to those in darkness as it has already been revealed to those in the light. God, provide our souls and our bodies with exactly what they need to carry out your call to passionately follow Christ. God, we confess that in so many ways we fall short in our own strength. Uh, we listen to doubters instead of listening to you, so please forgive us. God, help us to release any bitterness towards those we've wronged in the past. God, protect us as we relentlessly pursue you in even deeper prayer. Protect our team as we prepare to pioneer into a new gospel frontier. God, we pray that thine would be the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.